The text that we're focusing on as we go into part three of our called out series is Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 to 20. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of God. This is the gospel of the Lord. We're now in week three of our called out sermon series. We're looking at who the church is, what the church does, and how the church operates. We started week one by talking about the basis for this whole series, that the church is both a movement and an institution. We saw that from 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2. And then last week we started to work out the implications of this and see what James tells us very clearly, that if we're going to start a movement in this institution, it's going to start right here, with the way that we treat each other in the ordinary moments of life. And after last week, I heard a lot of comments from our congregation about what we talked about. And I think that's because James didn't mince words with you. When James wrote, he very clearly called out our sin as a congregation who was called out to be something better. And so I have two things to tell you about that. First of all, don't say I didn't warn you. Remember the first week of this series, I said this series is meant to call us out. First, to call us out for the sin that we commit regularly as part of this church. But then also to show us what a life called out into the gospel looks like. But secondly, if last week made you a little bit uncomfortable, that means it's working. If you have a God who is not able to step into your life and tell you you're wrong in the places where it hurts the most, you don't have a God. You have a pushover. And so if you want a true God, an all-powerful, almighty, everlasting, omnipresent God, then expect him to say things that make you uncomfortable. Because you're not just good people or sort of bad people, you're wicked people. You're rebellious against God. We all admitted it about 10 minutes ago. And so the scripture as it comes to us is going to acknowledge that but then realize that God doesn't want to save average people or, or good people. He wants to save wicked people. He sent Jesus to save wicked people of whom we are the worst. So we're going to continue our series and continue to be called out as we look at what it means to be extraordinary. 
Everybody wants to be extraordinary. There's not many people who wake up in the morning and say, you know what I'd love to be today? Totally average, maybe even below average. Everybody wants to be extraordinary in one way or another. And while we may accept the status quo in some areas, there's always one thing, or at least one, that we think, I want to be the best or better than most in that thing. What we're going to find out is that this attitude inflicts the church as well. But we're also going to see what a truly extraordinary person looks like. The way the Bible describes an extraordinary person. And we're going to see it in three, in three parts today. The origin, the characteristics, and the effects of a truly extraordinary person. So we're going to take the text that we just read. We're actually going to take it in sections in reverse. So we're going to start with the end and move towards the front um, as we look at Jesus' words. So Jesus said to us, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now when Jesus says the law here, he's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament was not written at the time that Jesus was on earth. Therefore, if anyone who sets aside one of the, anyone who sets aside one of the, the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not, certainly not, enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts by demolishing the idea of normal extraordinariness. There are really two ways that people try to be extraordinary, just in our lives in general, whether you're Christian or not. And those two fir- first two ways are the first two fill in the blanks for you today if you're taking notes. The two ways that most people try to be extraordinary are to either follow the rules or abolish the rules. To follow the rules or abolish the rules. I think there may be no better way to illustrate how this is the, inf- this is the um, infection of the sinful heart and humanity than looking at a show that I like, and maybe some of you like, Suits. Now, I can't advocate everything that happens in the show Suits, but I do love the way that it perfectly portrays the two ways that the sinful nature tends to operate, through these two main characters. Now, not all of you have seen Suits, so I'll catch you up. Uh, Suits is a show about lawyers based in New York. It's actually filmed in Toronto at Bay and King Street and the surrounding area, which is kind of cool for us. Um, It's about a, a firm and about six ensemble characters, but it follows mainly these two characters. On your left, Lewis Litt. On your right, Harvey Specter. And they embody abolish the rules or follow the rules. Lewis Litt is the follow the rules kind of character. He's the one who has more billables than any other lawyer in the firm. He works harder than everyone else and is diligent in the work that he works on. He's in charge of all of the um, associates. And he puts in long hours, being the first one in and the last one to leave. Whenever his boss asks him to do something, he says, yes, I'll do it. Harvey Specter, on the other hand, embodies abolishing the rules. He's a smooth-talking, kind of gets-his-way killer of a lawyer who doesn't work a lot of cases but works the biggest cases. And because of that, makes more money than anyone else in the firm. Because he does things his way. He doesn't really care how everyone else wants to operate. No, he's going to do whatever it takes, even bending the rules to get his way. When his boss comes to him and asks him to do something, he tends to go a different direction. And every one of us, whether we're Christian or not, embodies these two characters. 
to abolish the rules, or to follow the rules. Some of you are Lewises. Some of you love to follow the rules. You were maybe the kids in school who did whatever the teacher said, got straight A's, maybe scholarships, or got to be valedictorian. You did what was asked of you in the way it was asked, and you got rewarded. You were extraordinary because you followed the rules. But this keeps going into our adult life as well. Think about maybe the teenager who wants to be extraordinary in sports. They put in the long hours of training and practice. They drive to the places they're supposed to go. They listen to the coaches because they're following the rules. The rules of the way you become an extraordinary athlete. Maybe think of the mom who reads all the blog posts, reads all the books she can get her hands on because she wants to be the perfect mom. She's trying to follow the rules to be extraordinary. On the other hand, some of you are like Harvey. You're not really concerned so much with what the rules are. You're going to make your own way. You were maybe the kids in school who were called trendy. Or you're maybe the people at work who are, have a more entrepreneurial spirit, looking for different ways to get things done. But for each of us, we're at least one at almost every time of our life. In every situation, we're trying to be extraordinary by following the rules or throwing away the rules. And so Jesus brings these two ideas, these two ways that the human heart is infected by sin, right to the forefront of our mind in this text. And he does it using the Pharisees, a group of people who would have been the perfect neighbor, the perfect parents, the perfect husbands. They would have been the people you looked at and said they are the ideal Christians. They do everything the way that you, sh that you should do it. In fact, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law not only took God's law and tried to follow it, but they added additional laws onto it to make sure that they were following the laws to the extreme. They were the people who you wanted to be in your life. And yet Jesus says, what? Your righteousness must surpass that of them. And that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. See, what Jesus does is he takes this idea of following the rules or abolishing the rules and he puts it into our Christian life. And the Christian church has two kind of Christianese words to describe this way of thinking. I'm going to teach them both to you. The first of them is legalism. Legalism. It's the idea of following the rules no matter what. Following the rules hoping that God will value you or your church will value you or other people will value you even to the point where you might make extra laws on top of what God has said so that you can be extra righteous. And this is something that many people struggle with. They want to be extraordinary, so they try to follow God's rules. They come to church and they figure, if I say the right words, if I act the right way, if I wear the right clothes, if I'm here every Sunday, if I'm reading my Bible, then I am righteous before God. At least I haven't messed up my life or destroyed my marriage, or took advantage of my freedom when I was my, in my teen years, I'm pretty good. Or if I wasn't good at one time, I'm getting better. This is legalism. It's the need to follow the rules. You can know a legalist because very often they don't just hold themselves to that higher standard, they hold other people to that high standard. They say, you have to act like this. You have to treat others this way. You have to parent like this. You have to manage your money this way. You shouldn't talk like that. Legalists are always concerned with the rules. 
But do you remember what Jesus said to the legalist and all of us? He said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you realize what he's saying? You might think you're good, but if you're not able to surpass the people who spend their entire life trying to be good, you're not even close. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law had no job other than to be good all the time. They spent 24-7 of their life trying to follow the rules. And Jesus says, you have to surpass them. Now, there may be some parts of your life that are pretty righteous. But I think every one of us would look at our life and say, there are some places where I am not living up. Where I am rebelling against God and against his word. See, the legalist in all of us needs to see that the bar is far higher than we ever thought it was. That we have no chance to reach it. That we're not pretty close. We're failures. And that our attempts to live up to the law are pitiful in God's eyes. That our value has nothing to do with our performance before him. That our righteousness will never surpass that of the professional righteous people. But Jesus picks out the other half of this, the other side of the spectrum, the feeling of abolishing the rules, which in Christianese is this long word, antinomianism. Antinomianism. Nomos, nomian, right, in the middle, is the Greek word for law. And anti, of course, is against. So, against any laws. Not in the sense of disobeying the laws, but in the sense of taking the laws away. To be antinomian is to say there should not be any laws. And this is probably the prevailing way that most people think about God in our culture today. That God is pretty cool with just about anything. As long as you're not hurting anybody, you can do whatever you want with whoever you want. He's going to love you anyways. He's going to take care of you, watch over you, give you what you need if you pray for it. That God doesn't really care all that much. But Jesus says something very opposite of that attitude as well. He says at the beginning of these verses, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, what Jesus says is for you, if you think the rules don't really apply that much, or that God doesn't really care about how you act because he's just going to forgive you anyways, Jesus didn't come to take away the law. The law is still there. The law is still true. The law still binds you. You can't escape it or ignore it, or make it go away. It's still there. And it still judges you every day as wicked. Now the beauty in all of this is that Jesus says, I'm going to fulfill the law, which which we'll get to eventually. But let's just think for a second how this presses into our life today. Are there places in your Christian life where you'd rather abolish the rules? Maybe it's at the third or fourth drink. Where you think, God will forgive me. I'm not going to hurt anybody. Maybe it's when you click on that pornographic website. No one will find out. It's not going to hurt anyone. God will forgive me tomorrow. Or maybe a very interesting, specific one that I've found more and more. People's unwillingness to be who they are in their faith. It's interesting how many times I have heard this, even in our congregation, 
where people will say something like, you know, I like this church, but I'm not totally sure I agree with all the doctrines. Or I'm not totally sure I'm willing to call myself Lutheran. Or that's what the Wells teaches. You realize that you're abolishing the rules when you do that, right? Saying the rules, ah, they're sort of more like guidelines than anything else. It doesn't really matter exactly what I believe, just as long as I'm genuine. Be what you believe. Now, I'm not saying Lutheranism is the perfect church, or that everything about the Lutheran church is right, or that Wells is immaculate and has no sin. But if you're going to be part of our church, be part of our church. And if you're not, then don't. If you believe what we believe, stand up and say, I believe it, for better or worse. But if you don't, we're glad you're here. But stop abolishing the rules. See, the temptation of every heart is to fall into one of two categories, into legalism or antinomianism at all times. And we sway back and forth on this pendulum all the time. And the truth is that if that's how we operate, then we are anything but extraordinary. In fact, we're very ordinary. We're just like every other person out there who's trying to follow the rules. Even if they're not biblical rules, they're the rules of how to get a good job or how to get a good spouse or how to be popular or get acknowledged. And if we're abolishing the rules, we're like every other person out there saying, notice me for how I'm different. In fact, if we try to be this, we are very ordinary. So what's the solution? Stop trying to be extraordinary. Because every attempt that you have to be extraordinary in God's eyes or in the world's eyes will make you, in fact, very ordinary. But the beauty of the message of the gospel is our next fill in the blank if you're taking notes with us. Because Jesus was extraordinary, my ordinary becomes extraordinary. See, when Jesus says he comes to fulfill the law, he's saying the law still exists. The law still binds us. But I'm not asking you to fulfill it because you have no chance. I'm going to fulfill it. And I'm not just going to obey it. I'm going to fill it up completely so that it has no claim on your soul anymore. I'm going to take all of my righteousness, my perfection in adhering to the law, and give it to you so that you are filled up to the brim with righteousness. So that you don't have to walk out your door and try to be extraordinary by following the rules or being different. And if that message sinks into your heart, then you will become a truly extraordinary person. So the origin of an extraordinary person is that they realize that Jesus has been extraordinary for them. That there's nothing left to achieve in this world. They are simply unleashed, set free, pushed out the door and said, you have nothing to accomplish, so just be a blessing to other people. God doesn't need you to be righteous. God doesn't need you to be extraordinary. But he set you free to be extraordinary for the people around you. And as soon as you understand that that's how God sees you, the weight will come off. The need to be noticed, the need to be acknowledged, the need to be accepted, it'll evaporate. Because God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of all things, says, I have fulfilled every demand on your soul. Now, a person who understands that, their life's going to be different. 
they're going to show the characteristics of a truly extraordinary person, which is the next part of the text. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus says the characteristics of a truly extraordinary life are that they are going to look like salt and light. Now, salt has two uses. One of them we still use in our culture today, but one of them was very common in the ancient world that Jesus lived in, and that would be to be a preservative. Without refrigeration systems and freezers, if you had meat and you didn't want it to go bad or decay or rot, you would put it in salt. Salt would preserve that rotting meat. And so Jesus says the characteristics of a truly extraordinary life start by being preservative salt. By looking at the world around you and saying, what is rotting? What is decaying? What is falling apart? And then being willing to insert yourself into that situation or that conflict or that injustice. Because you have nothing to lose. God has given you everything you need. So what does that look like? What would it look like to be preservative in your family? Are there good things to preserve in your family? Relationships? resources, time? How could you preserve those things if you lived completely selflessly? Could you defer to the other people in your house? Could you find ways to serve them? Could you look at the money that you have as something not to spend on yourself, but as an opportunity to be good to the people whom God has given to you? Could you be a preservative in your community? You guys have two sets, of, or uh, one set of eyes, two eyes, every single one of you, and you go to different places than I go, what do you see in our community? Do you see places that are decaying? Social structures that are rotting? People who are falling apart? How can you be a preservative for those people or social structures? How can you step into those things and selflessly say, I'm going to give everything I have to preserve this good thing? I don't know what that looks like for you, but I know that God calls us to it. But he doesn't just call us to be a preservative. He calls us also to be the second thing salt is, a flavoring. Like I said to the children, you don't eat food that's really salty and say, wow, what tasty salt. You say, what tasty food, whatever the food was. In the same way, God says, make things better without needing to be noticed. What could that look like? Maybe in your life group, it's not to be the one who has all the answers or the one who dominates the conversation or who says all of their problems before listening to someone else's problems. It could be the one who listens, who asks questions, who guides others humbly to the answers. To be a person that people say about them, not, wow, they're really smart. Wow, they're really influential. Wow, they have a big personality, but they say that group that group is really special. What could flavoring look like in our church? What good things here could you make better? Could it be by the words that you speak? 
instead of complaining or criticizing, to encourage and build up? To find the things that are being done by people who have maybe done them for years and say, can I do this with you? Can I take over for you one week? What could it look like to be flavoring salt in this church? What could it look like to be flavoring salt in the small communities that you're a part of? Whether it's a book club or a sport or the gym or the grocery store or whatever, what could it, be look, what could it look like to be good without needing to be noticed? You'll only do it once your heart is completely melted by the fact that Jesus has given you all the value you need. You do not need to be noticed. Jesus says then, we're not just salt, we're light. And he gives three characteristics of light. First, he says that light illumines and warms. He says, you are the light of the world. And of course, he's making a reference to words that he said elsewhere, that he is the light of the world, and that we, therefore, are to be him to the world. To do what Jesus would do, say what Jesus would say, love the way Jesus loved, correct the way Jesus corrected. But really, what does light do? Especially the light of our world, the sun. Makes it possible for us to see and gives us energy so that we can live. If you were the light of someone's world, what would that look like? How would you guide them to truth? How would you give them encouragement and energy to accomplish whatever you've been guiding them to? Second, Jesus says that we are like a town on a hill that cannot be hidden. In his culture, there weren't electric lights, there weren't street lights. If you were outside a city at night, you were in almost pitch darkness. So if you saw a city lit up on a hill, you would know that you were near safety. Because cities built on hills in that day were particularly well defended against attackers. The high ground gave them an advantage. A city lit up on a hill at night would, been a, would have been a picture of safety. Do you provide safety for the people in your life? Only when you realize that you are made completely safe in the arms of Jesus, that he has put his body and blood into your mouth through the, word, uh, through the uh, bread and wine in his sacrament, can you be a safe place for that person? Can you be the person to whom people come because they know you will have a listening and empathetic ear? That you won't correct, but you'll pray? That you won't fix but you'll listen? Are, are you a person to whom people can go and feel safe? And finally, Jesus says that we provide light indiscriminately. He says we're like a lamp put in a house, not covered by a bowl, but giving light to the entire room. Do you provide this illumination and energy and safety to everyone? Could you? Only when you realize that it's ragamuffins and losers that Jesus picks to save. People who have realized they're the bottom, that they're not good, in fact, not even close to good enough. When you realize that, that God picks people not because of their attractiveness or their behavior or their smarts or their potential, but simply because of his grace, you then can also shine light indiscriminately for the people you live with. You could show this kind of energy and warmth and safety to every person here, every person in our community, every person in your family, regardless of whether they treat you well or they're good people. But you will only do that when your heart is melted 
by the fact that Jesus fulfilled the law for you. A truly extraordinary life is a life of preservative and flavoring love that steps into other people's lives to illumine them to a path that is better and to provide them safety in the arms of their Savior. So that's the origin and the characteristic of a truly extraordinary life. Finally, we're going to look at the effects of a truly extraordinary life. Jesus says, excuse me, Oops, my fault. I did not put the rest of the text on the screen. I apologize for that. I'll just read it for you. Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what Jesus says is that the effects of a truly extraordinary life is that you're going to receive criticism and be impervious to it. Some people might say, you know those things you said about being salt and light? You don't really need to be a Christian to do those things. Any person can be kind to their neighbor. Any person can try to provide a safe place for other people. And true, they can. But what Christianity has is an impervious nature to criticism when they are salt and light. The nature of this world is that it hates Christianity. And so when you start to be salt and light in your community, people will persecute you. In fact, if they're not persecuting you, it might be a sign that you're not as salty and bright as you maybe think you are. Have you ever had that moment where you have the best of intentions and someone doesn't understand you? That's what God says the Christian life will constantly be like. And that if we're not ready for that, well, then we are going to fail in being salt and light. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to even have things falsely said about us. And yet Jesus says in that moment, we're blessed. That we should continue to be salt and light. Now, how on earth would you get a power source to do that? Well, again, in the gospel that Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. But even more so than that, a deep-seated conviction that that is true. I think every one of you here understands at least part of who Jesus is and the basics of what he's done. But, but until it sinks deep into your soul and you believe it, you will not be able to stand up against the persecution that will come against truly extraordinary people. You need to have that deep, durable core in your heart that says, I don't care what other people say, I'm going to do what is right. And only Christianity can offer that to you. If you're not a religious person, you may be able to be good and may actually even feel very convicted that you're right about what you're doing, but truth is relative. How do you know you're always doing the right thing? How do you know right isn't shifting? How do you know you're actually giving that person their version of right? If you're not a religious person, you can't stay deeply convicted to doing what is right. And even if you are a religious person, but you're not a Christian, every other religious system says, be good to get something. Be good so that God will notice you. Be good so you'll earn more righteousness. Be good to save yourself. But Christianity doesn't. Christianity says you have no chance to fulfill the rules. Don't even try. Thankfully for you, Jesus Christ has fulfilled them for you. 
And so now you're free to live for the sake of your neighbor, not for yourself anymore. Your status, guaranteed. Your work, undone. But now you can be extraordinary in that work. Let me give you an example of how this might work for us. And I'm not advocating anything that necessarily this man stands for, the things that he's done. In fact, in many ways, I feel like he has given Christianity a bad name. But he does give us an example of what it looks like to do things when you're deeply convicted that they're true. President of the United States, Donald Trump, was elected by a great surprise almost four years ago. But as people look now and see why he was elected, they realize that he did something that many candidates don't do. He was willing to keep saying the things he believed were true even in the face of persecution. Whether they're true or not doesn't matter for our discussion. He was willing to stand up and say what he thought was true regardless of how people treated him. Is that how you feel about your faith? Are you so convinced that what you have is true? That you're willing to continue to say it, continue to do it, regardless of what people say to you? Only when you realize that Jesus has fully filled the law for you, will you be able to step out in that kind of confidence. Because you are far more wicked than you ever thought, but you're also far more loved than you ever dared imagine. And the love that Jesus offers you, the peace that he offers you, goes beyond even your own understanding. So you can step out free. Step out empowered. Step out to be extraordinary. So I want to finish with a little test for you to see if you believe this. It's right from the text, too. Chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to practice? To take a task that you're not very good at and do it again and again and again, even though you're not good at it, until it becomes second nature, right? What would it mean to practice the commands of Jesus? It would mean to do them again and again and again, even though you're not good at them, even though it's difficult. Are you willing to put in that kind of effort? If not, then maybe you're still stuck in trying to be extraordinary like the world says to be extraordinary. But if your heart has been melted by Jesus' love, then you will look at God's commands and say, I don't have to do them, but it would be awesome if I was really good at those things. And so I'm going to practice. He then says, teach. What does it mean to teach? Not necessarily just to stand up in front of a classroom but to have something in your head that you believe to be true that flows out of your mouth. Do God's words flow out of your mouth? Are they the way that you frame every conversation, every conflict, every decision in your home? Do you look at God's word and say, I can't wait to learn more of that? Or do you look at it like a chore, like a job, like a duty? If you do, you you might still be stuck in trying to be extraordinary by the rules or by abolishing the rules. But once you realize that the message of the scripture is good news for you, you will want to learn it so you can teach it. Jesus has fulfilled every law for us. Once you understand that, you can be truly extraordinary. I pray that that happens in our church, in your lives, and in our community. Because that will start a movement that the world won't be able to handle. 
they'll start to say false things about us. They'll start to criticize our intentions. Because we know who Jesus is and that his words are always true, we can be that kind of extraordinary. I don't know how this looks in each one of your lives, but I do know it's true and that you are salt and light. So go be salt and light. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, make us salt and light. Make us a preservative for the broken things of this world, a flavoring of greatness for the good things in this world. Make us light to illumine people's paths, to give encouragement and energy, to provide safety in the truths of your word and, call, and lead us to do it indiscriminately, looking at every person the way that you look at them as people for whom you lived and people for whom you died. We ask these things in your name. Amen.